That's okay. I'll turn it on you. Call me Phil. <laughs> well, that certainly is a good certainly is a good idea. I could do this and I could say Anybody's got a problem, I feel they're healed. Wait, wait, Lynn. Hold on. Well everybody gets in here. So I understand you've been having good times of discussion. That's great. That's, that's why the questions were designed, they were. And sometimes there are answers. I don't know some of the answers. I don't know most of the answers, as a matter of fact. But uh, I'll call upon other men that I think may have the answer here, too. Uh, I, would, I would just as soon sit and listen to some of you pastors and, and non-pastors and listen to McElhenney. I guess we're uh, ready to begin. Uh-oh, here comes the lizard. <laughs> She's clean, okay. Okay, we have one question, starting with uh, Lynn there. Selling all of our uh, spare wheat to the Russians and their, and their friends. Their, I think that's a good idea, considering that... Uh, <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you this, Lynn. And I, I don't want to put you off, but I would much rather deal with exegetical questions as questions from Scripture as opposed to issues like that, because I really don't have a whole lot of opinions about things like that. You know, if someone wants to ask me what I said and what I meant by what I said this week, that's a good one. Uh, so at this point, I really don't have a good answer for you along those lines. One more. I didn't think you were very direct with what you were saying, so maybe you clarify it for me. You talk about uh, if the society stinks because the, the Christians got salted up enough. Okay. You jumped around real quick when you said, and, that, and you do that by witnessing to them. Now, is there any direct blame uh, uh, that a Christian is supposed to feel about uh, the godliness, the ungodliness of the uh, world he lives in? Well, uh, again, I can go back to uh, my statement about San Francisco. San Francisco is corrupt. Because of the homosexuals, because of what they've done, for sure, because of all the other sinners in there, too. But the direction of the passage of Matthew 5 was on the responsibility finally falls with the Christian. If he hasn't done anything which he's supposed to do, then God's going to hold him far more accountable to the degeneration of society, to whom much is given, much is, much is required. That, that, to me, seems to be a scriptural principle. Though the, uh, the other immoral individuals uh, and Al Capone and all this stuff, they're going to have to face up to Christ, too. They're going to have to... And it's their fault. And, and as Ezekiel says, each man is going to have to uh, own up and, and, and before God and be judged for it. But when you deal with a supposedly Christian society in which we, we have, I think we do have a Christian society, not in a legal sense, not in a political sense, but in some sense of the term, it is Christian. That's a relative term. It's not Soviet Russia, but it is Christian in that sense of the term. We are far more accountable than the Soviets are in maintaining a decent society they would have. We as Christians are far more accountable. And if we, let, if we drop the ball, God's going to come after us. I don't believe there's going to be another Sodom and Gomorrah. San Francisco is not Sodom and Gomorrah. There'll never be another Sodom and Gomorrah again. I don't believe history repeats itself. There are things in history that are like things in the past, for sure, but will not have another degenerative period like that again, because I believe that the kingdom of God is permeating throughout the world. As the yeast permeates the loaf, 
so the kingdom will permeate the loaf. You'll have rotten times. It's true, you'll have terrible times. We look at the, the, the Nazi Holocaust as an absolutely awful state. But if you study the history of war, I like to study the history of war and, and strategy and so forth. Wars prior to the Christian faith were absolutely a, a devastating. I mean, everything was completely destroyed. And if it wasn't for the Christian faith, you wouldn't have the Geneva Convention and the rules of the Geneva, Geneva Convention. You wouldn't have the Red Cross. That all started in the 1860s. And thank God for Christians. They may not have been Orthodox, fundamental Bible believers may not have believed in the doctrine of the Trinity right down the line, but it was Christianity that brought an amelioration even to war. And so thank God for those Christians. Okay, let's, let's move on. Okay. Uh, Stu had a question too. Yes. Are, um, are children of the covenant in Christ or outside of Christ? I take the position that the children of the covenant are in Christ. They are saved. That's what it means to be in covenant. Uh, that's what the covenant means. Uh, baptism means to be united with Christ. Now, when you apply baptism to a child, you're not saying it's outside of Christ. When you apply baptism to an infant, you're not reading that infant's heart. But neither are you reading that adult's heart either. But neither do you say when you place water on an adult, I'm reading his heart. No more than you're reading the infant's heart. But the meaning of baptism isn't determined by the man's profession of faith or the child's lack of profession of faith. The meaning is determined by God's word. And God says baptism means death with Christ and union with him in his resurrection. So in that context, the, the infant seed are believers. And if they died, they'd go to heaven. That's the, that's the promise of the covenant. And I think that's what, Paul, what David is talking about with his son who dies. When he says, I will go to be with him. I don't think he's referring to the grave there. There's no hope in that. He didn't stop crying with, stop crying because, oh well, he's dead, I'll be dead too. No, uh, he died on the seventh day. And he was circumcised on the eighth, but he didn't make it to the eighth, so he didn't receive the sign of the covenant. But he didn't receive the sign of the covenant because of the profession of faith. And it wasn't the sign of the covenant that made them a covenant member. They were covenant members. And so I would say, in the passage of David and Samuel, that he had the hope of eternal life. Does that answer that directly? You want to spar with that? Anybody got a different answer? Maybe somebody has a different answer. Yes? Well, if they're saved, they've been elected before the foundation of the world, absolutely. We don't know about the child any more than we know about ourselves. We know about ourselves as much as we know about the children. We know about the child as much as we know about ourselves. If we're in the covenant, we've been chosen. We only see that election. We only see our election back through the gospel or back through uh, the covenant promise, you see. I don't know my election. I don't come to Christ, first of all, by trying to figure out whether I'm elect. Right? What do you do? What does a person do first? What do the elect who are coming to Christ do first? They trust Christ, right. Now, if they're not of the elect, see, the, the unelect won't trust Christ. That's grand, true. Only the elect will trust Christ. That's true. But you don't sit around trying to figure out first if you're elect and then to see if you can trust in Christ. You simply flee to Christ and the child goes along with you in that flight to Christ. How about the one that left the church? What's the faith? 
Well, I mean, you'd have the same problem with an adult, too. You know, what, what do you do with an adult member that uh, reneges on his faith? Does that mean he wasn't saved? Possibly. He was never saved? Possibly. Does that mean he's unelect? Maybe. We don't know. The only thing we do know is that he's out of fellowship with Christ. He may have been one of the unelect. We don't deal with that. What we deal with the fact is his sin, not his election or lack of election. Okay. Now, any other minister want to add anything? Elders, anybody else want to add anything to that? First John 2.19 is very interesting. I like uh, G.C. Burkauer's book on perseverance. And he deals with that issue of First John 2.19. They went out from us and, because they were not of us. And, and, and he says, and I think he's right, the emphasis of John in 1 John is the fact that salvation is once for all. You can't play with salvation. You can't jump in it and jump out of it. And that text, the second John, 1 John 2, demonstrates that if you really belong to Christ, you stay with Christ. And the point of that verse was, these fellows really didn't belong to Christ. They really didn't. And you begin to see that after a while. Okay, another thought. I want to get back to the salt and the earth okay. and, uh, and the Red Cross and the like of that. And uh, I know when I was in Chattanooga, one of the most benevolent societies there that I found that I worked out was the Jewish Foundation for, for retarded and handicapped children, etc. And uh, it was a wonderful um, thing that looked very much like the Red Cross. And and then you talk about the salt in the earth. And you see these benevolent societies and this is evidence of Christianity. I wish you could expound a little bit on what is being salt in the earth and what is what common grace or that kind of thing. I'm a little bit stuck. Yeah, and thank God for those thank God for those non Christian organizations that do Christian things. That's true. A moral service organizations and because of God's grace it's always because of God's grace that anybody can do that good uh, but when Jesus talked about salt and light he wasn't talking about doing good as such he wasn't talking about morality as such he was talking about redemption salvation that's what we are so that's the salt and light meaning of the text though there are a lot of other groups that that take on that experience that what we call common grace of God and thank God for that common grace and that we're to impose it, we're to impress upon them that the only reason they are doing that good is because of God's grace. And the, the way Van Til said it was, because the Christian story is true, the unbeliever will live to a certain extent. The reprobate will benefit to a certain extent because the Christian message is in fact true. You will have do-goodism and service organizations that have a, at least a superficialness. Uh, in the Old Testament, this is the story of Jehu. Jehu is anointed by God, appointed by God to exterminate such and such. And he does all that, and God thanks him, as it were. God doesn't thank him as such, but God blesses him to the extent that he kept the law. But because he didn't do it from the heart, God also finally judges him and, and brings the curse upon him. But to the extent that he kept the law, as superficial as it was, to the extent his sons, his next four sons, became kings. So there was a temporariness a stay of judgment, if you will, because there was an obedience uh, to God's law. And, okay, anybody want to add to that? Have an opportunity to? Judith? No, I don't want to add. Okay. Different one, then. Fine. Um, maybe I didn't hear all that you said correctly, but 
you were talking about the uh, the Christian who fails to do what he's, he's supposed to do would be worse off than the unbeliever. But if you're truly a Christian and elect, how could that be? Because once you still be in heaven, and that's going to be eternal salvation, will still be better than eternal damnation. Yeah, that's true too. Uh, the case I was thinking of was the second. Second Peter chapter 2 where the false prophets come in uh, who are in fact of the devil and they deny the Lord that bought them and so forth and Paul says their, their end is worse than ever and they did have a show of godliness temporarily speaking that's true in that case it's worse to have known the way and then have fallen away completely your condition in judgment of course then I want to talk about that judgment as well uh, but don't let, that, don't let that comfort you a whole lot to thinking that therefore a real born-again Bible-believing elect person can get sloppy. Because God will deal with him, I think, even Christians temporally in this earth in a severe fashion too at times. That, that's not always the case. God does not always judge us. He does not deal with us according to our sins and thank God for that. But God does put a lot of Christians through all kinds of judgment. You get the 1 Corinthians 11 passage. Because they distort, they they uh, they distort the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. What 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 does Paul say is some of the judgment? Sickness and death for some of them. Now, for the unbeliever who never partakes of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, he doesn't discern. No big deal to him. And yet, he's not threatened like I'm threatened. That threat wasn't given to the world. That threat was given to those who. Uh, believers, and I think true believers, can, God can kill, take home to be with him. Yes, they go to heaven, and yes, the Lord will bless them. And think. But that wasn't to, to ameliorate. Again, it wasn't just to, to salve over the seriousness of, uh, of partaking of the Lord's Supper. Okay. Jim? Uh, how do you counsel people in San Francisco about whether they should move out of that city or not? Uh, what uh, would be the biblical basis for making your decision as to whether to stay there with all those problems or find the, the uh, little rural town that you think is going to be something different? How do we counsel people living in San Francisco? You're dealing with a homosexual who wants to come out of the gay community. No, I'm just the regular family. If I moved to San Francisco and I said, boy, I don't know if I can raise my kids in this place and I better move someplace else. Well, we've, we're going on a campaign in the past few years to keep families in San Francisco. Uh, and for a long time they would move in and, and a nice couple, the ideal couple, you know. He's a lawyer and she's, uh, and they're, they're yuckies, young upward Christians. <laughs> or they're dinks. You know what a dink is? What's a dink? Double income and no kids and they start out in our church. And as soon as the wife becomes in a family way, they start thinking of moving away. And so we've been counseling them, no, stay in the city. And now they're beginning to. We had our elders that had moved, one of our elders moved down to Hayward, which is about 30 miles away. It was tough to do anything in the church at 30 miles away. And I really encouraged them. I said, isn't it interesting how the pastor can't do that and he's got his kids. I mean... I can't move away and buy a home and have a nice suburban community. I've got to come to San Francisco. After all, that's my job. I'm called to put up with that stuff. But so-and-so elder or so-and-so member, he's not called to that. Well, baloney, he's not called to that. We're called together. So we counsel them to stay in the city, raise their kids in the city, start a Christian school in the city. We don't have a reformed Christian school, but we have a 
We have a good Christian school, it's a Baptist one, but we want a Reformed one as well. Now, as to the homosexual issues specifically, uh, we do counsel those fellows if they're coming out of that lifestyle to leave San Francisco altogether. Just get out. Because everybody knows everybody in the gay community, and they all have their little black books with all their addresses and phone numbers, and they keep calling each other. And if they find so-and-so has left the gay community, you really got to pull away and wrench away from that because the homosexual has no family. He has no family. He's cut off from his own family because they don't want him, but they find out that he's gay. So he's all by himself, really. He doesn't have a wife. If he did, he leaves his wife. His wife doesn't want him. Who wants a homosexual husband and so forth? So he really, when he comes to Christ, is all by himself. And yet, what does the psalmist say about lonely people, the solitary person? What's the psalmist say about that? He plants them in families. He creates families for them. And the family is, of course, the Church of Jesus Christ. So several of the fellows, we said, okay, they have cried because, oh no, if they leave there, that lifestyle, they'll be all by themselves. And didn't Jesus say that? Yeah, you're going to lose friends, mothers and fathers and houses and lands. But when you come to Christ, you gain another whole family. So in the process, in the practical outworking, we've told these fellows, go home or leave San Francisco. It's just too hard. And like I said before, the, uh, the homosexual, the Christian homosexual groups, that is the anti-homosexual groups, they can't live in the city. They can't have their headquarters in the city. The Love and Action Exodus, there's a bunch of others too. They can't be in the city. They'd be harassed too much. Okay, you're gay. Now this question has to do with implications uh, of the verse in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, I'm sure in San Francisco you've got a lot of people involved in the, in the peace movement. But I remember oh, about two years ago, a young lady at our church in formal meeting uh, prayed for world peace. And I could, I could just sense from some of the re- reactions and expressions on faces of, of other people in the congregation. It's almost like, we don't pray. Uh, we don't pray in that manner. It, it almost has kind of a liberal ring. I don't know if she went on to pray, uh, Lord, uh, bless the peace movement. But have you worked out the implications of some of that in light of you know, the teachings and the sermon on the mount? What about the, the question is, what about the issue of blessed are the peacemakers and the issue of the peace movement and so forth? And how do we work that out? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, that was one of my messages that I was going to give. You know, what is our relationship to the peace movement? And whether we should get involved with a particular peace movement, have our own reform peace movement. Uh, I pray for peace in the world. Uh, I'm not opposed, I don't think the Bible is against war. So I think there's a biblical place for war. But I also believe in the prophecies of scripture that say there's going to come peace. But even if we would disagree over the issue of whether there's going to be universal peace, which I believe there is, uh, I think we have to work for peace, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, and I think uh, we need to pray for peace. Uh, I think we make it a regular habit. We have members in our church that are from Nicaragua, and uh, you know, their relatives are still down there. And we pray for Nicaragua and Honduras, and, and we pray for uh, the, the Middle East. You know, in the old 1647 Westminster Confession of Faith, the Directory of Worship, read that section on prayer before the sermon. If you prayed the prayer before the sermon, it would take an hour to do the thing because it's marvelously filled with all kinds of things. And one of the prayers is to pray for the, for the restoration of the old Israel, restoration of old Israel. But along with that is praying for the peace of the world as well. Yeah, I, I understand... Uh, 
how, how you feel. Uh, for example, my father wouldn't pray for peace in the world. He wouldn't. There won't be. Why bother? Now, I mean, that was 20 years ago. I think he's changed his mind about now. I think I've worked with him long enough. Uh, but I think we ought to pray for peace and work for peace. Now, I was, um, again, being introduced to a, a peace organization. It was a small organization, World Peace Organization. And they had gotten together a group of evangelical pastors. And they wanted to use these evangelical pastors, and the evangelical pastors used their material for world peace. After all, we have a common interest. I found out this organization was a Jewish organization, wanting world peace. I said, fine, but remember now, you're not going to have world peace without the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, well, I don't care how you phrase it. I said, it's not a matter of phrasing the thing. Uh, it's, a ma it's, it's absolutely crucial that if our negotiator is not going to do it in Christ, it's going to be empty, vapid. It's, it's just going to fall apart. Now, even to talk that way, uh, for Paul Nitze to, talk, to, to bring in Christ, to a lot of people, a lot of Christians, that's loony. You're just going to lose it right there. But I think we've got to start talking about it because back in the 19th century, that was, that was common among Bible believers, little liberals. Um, I don't know whether I've answered all your question, but um, there, is a, there is a horrible liberal theologian. Uh, his name is Walter Rauschenbusch. And uh, social gospel thing back in the latter part of the 19th century. I like to read his stuff. Now, I think I can read it and filter out the ungodly sort of socialism of it, and, but, but use some of it. And if I, if I read that from not his perspective, but from a biblical perspective, I like Rauschenbusch's stuff. And I don't like his liberalism, his rejection of, of the, the finality of God's word, the inspiration of God, and the substitutionary atonement. He wants to chuck all that stuff. But still, uh, it is the kingdom of God that will change and transform the world. I think we ought to pray for peace. I think we ought to have organizations for peace. I think we do. Yeah. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ in one real sense. Yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Anybody can add. Go ahead. Uh, it just strikes me that properly understood uh, when we are praying for our armed services, uh, we are praying for peace also. You know, in a just society, uh, military and civil police are peace officers. That is their purpose. They're not there to stir up trouble, but to solve problems. And, uh, and a just war is a peacemaking activity. Um, and so I think, you know, sometimes we think, well, we're either going to pray for peace or we're going to pray for defense. Well, from a Christian frame of reference, uh, you can do both of those, not to be doing both of those, but the ultimate goal is that there will be righteousness and peace uh, as, the, as the final outcome. And uh, let, let me throw out this uh, uh, theory of Isaiah chapter 2. I think Isaiah chapter 2 is, is extremely important. In the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and so forth. And the end of the prophecy in verse 4, Isaiah 2, 4 is, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and they shall not learn war anymore. That begins in the latter days. Now, the expression in the latter days is never used for eternity. It doesn't exclude eternity, but it, it is not used in reference to eternity. I believe that the prophecy was that wars would come to an end. Now, that doesn't mean there's going to be an absolutely perfect state. That's only in heaven. That's only in the glorified state. You recognize that. But there has to be some meaning to the text. It must mean something. And we can't just simply say, well, verse 3 had to do with this world, and verse 4 has to do with eternity. Because it says, in the latter days. 
It's not simply only in the latter days, but that's when, that's when that peace among the nations really begins. Well, anyway, that's my theory. Uh, any other questions? Anybody want to comment? Steve, did you want to comment? Steve, want to comment? Anybody? Raleigh, want to say something? Yes. Reformed evangelism. Comment on reformed evangelism. Well, you spoke the other day against some people. <laughs> so I <laughs> Yeah, we had a good discussion about that last night. Yeah, it was absolutely marvelous. We never taped it. No one will know because we'll all deny it. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it simple, but uh, like I, I recommended the book, uh, The Great Invitation by Errol Holtz. Uh, he did the one on Israel, prophet, what's the name of it? Uh, Restoration, of Restoration of Israel, things like that. Errol Holtz, Reformed Baptist. I think he deals with the issue of the love of God. And I think it's biblical to say uh, God loves the world. That's John 3.16. And in that is God loves you. And as a matter of fact, the thing that, the thing that affected me the most was preaching through the book of Jonah. See, what's, what's Jonah's message to Nineveh? Death. You don't even hear repent. But you're right. Repentance is in, obviously, repentance is going to be in there. These people don't know repentance by osmosis. They don't read his mind. But his message, in, in Jonah chapter 3, it was, speak to the people what I tell you. And then what's said was, in 40 days you're going to be destroyed. Now, I, I'm assuming that a little more was given, that we don't have privy information to but Jonah had privy information to and he does communicate that to the Ninevites and he's upset when the Ninevites are converted why should they be converted this terrible horrible people this is a Samaritan issue all over again and then in chapter 4 he says something absolutely marvelous what does he say why was he upset why did he take a boat to Tarshish what's it say about God pardon me he knew God would save, okay, and his description of God, to me, is the marvelous message of the gospel. Uh, o Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in your country? Therefore I hasted to flee from Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, and slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and mercy, and repentest thee of the evil. See, that same description and character of God is used with Israel in Joel chapter 2. The same character, characterization of God being full of mercy and loving kindness and so forth is used by Joel the prophet to apostate Israel. The same message is picked up and now used for Nineveh, who are not covenant people, and they're just Gentiles, they're outside. And it seems to me that even though he, the message was judgment, the supposition behind all that was God's more ready to save than to damn, to destroy. And I think you can say to someone, God's not only more interested in saving you, God wants you to be saved. And you're giving God's, you're giving God's word. To me, that's no difference in saying God loves you and wants to save you. I don't see what the difference is. Because he's a God full of loving kindness. So that's, that should be part of our reform message that God loves the world and has a wonderful plan for them. When you say wonderful plan, you're not talking about whether he's going to destroy them, he's got a plan to wipe out the unelect. 
True, he does have that plan. He has a plan of judgment. That's true. But that wonderful plan is the demands of the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel and you shall be saved. That's the wonderful plan. And he hasn't got it just for a few people. He's got it for everybody. The unelect reject that. They refuse it. That's not our fault. That's not God's fault. That's their fault. And they'll feel the, they'll feel the sting of that as well. Read Calvin on 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter three. No, Second Corinthians chapter two. Calvin's commentary on Second Corinthians chapter two, where he talks about the gospel being a savor of life and a savor of death. There you have this gospel being both things. But he points out that the gospel isn't both things at the same time. It's very interesting what Calvin has to say on that. Now, George. Uh, in the interest of peace and your good reform name, Chuck, uh, why don't uh, you? say that you would not be happy to see on a bumper sticker where you know you don't have an opportunity for expansion development you would not like to see on our on our cars just the word smile not love well i think what i said yesterday was i wouldn't i wouldn't like to see smile god loves you any more than repent of your sins out of context, the nature of a bumper sticker is kind of a frivolous thing. I think it's the nature of the bumper sticker rather than simply the nature of the expression, smile, God loves you. Because part of that may be death and destruction if you don't believe in him. And you want to elaborate on that too. I mean, you don't just simply say to someone, God loves you, period, and leave it there. Either you elaborate on that thing and point out, without repentance, they're under his wrath, too. And they will be destroyed as quickly as anybody else, too. But neither would you say to someone, God hates you. How many would say that? God hates you. He does hate all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5 tells you that. Psalm 7 tells you something of the same line. He hates you. Would you want to say, God hates you? That's true, because the message of the gospel is, the message of the gospel is good news. And it comes to people as his loving kindness, full of mercy. He's full of wrath, too. He is. But it comes, that's why, I, that's why I suggest reading Calvin on 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14. It, that message of love, that message of grace, becomes the message of wrath to those that reject it. Absolutely. John. I don't think I can say to somebody, God hates you. Because Romans 9 tells me that God is the one who decides whom he loves and whom he hates, and he has compassion. On whom he has compassion, Jacob, I love him, he saw I hate him. But just as I do not know the secret will of God when I'm talking to an unbeliever, you cannot say, God hates you, you're one to reprobate. I don't see how you can also say God loves you because the love that God loves the people with is a saving love. And it's a saving love that not only plans redemption, but accomplishes redemption. Not only accomplishes redemption with the obedience and the death and resurrection of Christ, but the accomplishment of redemption includes the works after the Spirit's application of that to his, to his life. And thus that saving love, that electing love, begins a complete motion, of course. But my concern is that I must speak the truth in love. And if I am to speak the truth in love, then I need to give, in a succinct way, a message of the gospel that does not present a false hope. And at the same time, just gives a complete and a profitable. Thus, I am very impressed that the message of the Apostles in the book of Acts is not one of God's love, but one of God's creatorship 
and the responsibility of his creatures to him, and then the, the potential for the coming judgment. It seems to me that what the gospel is in the book of Acts in there is that God offers to all creation a way to escape his judgment. I wouldn't pit it against each other. I wouldn't say the apostles didn't offer love, but did offer this. I would say the love of God must be offered in that message of repentance. It must be.